Let's open the Scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew in the first place, and then 1 Corinthians 3. We'll begin in Matthew chapter 9. These readings are in connection with our text in John, Gospel of John chapter 3, where we read there about John's disciples having a discussion with their teacher, John. So Matthew 9, verse 14, we find the disciples of John, and we read this, Then the disciples of John came to him, that's to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. We turn now to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. First letter, chapter 3, and here the apostle has to address the congregation about some divisions taking place, something that is also happening in our text in John 3. Verse 1, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. 
For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Please turn with me in the scriptures to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, continuing our series of sermons on these early chapters of John. We have come as far as John 3, verse 22. So the Lord Jesus has concluded his discussion with Nicodemus, and then we read the following, 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And I just draw your attention to footnote number eight and that quotation mark. The footnote says, some interpreters hold that the quotation continues through verse 36. I count myself among those who hold to that, and there's a number of translations that do. So just consider the following words as John still speaking to his disciples. He who comes from above is above all. He who was of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So far then, our text, in response to the preaching, we'll sing hymn 52 about the bridegroom. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. We'll sing the stanzas one, two, and three. Holy and loved bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to do when division takes hold in the church? Or better still, how can we avoid becoming divided? 
Division can be caused by all sorts of things, differences in opinion, envy, rivalry. All throughout church history, there are countless examples of congregations being divided, of whole church federations or denominations being divided. And in every case, you find again and again that nobody wins in those situations. No matter what side of the divide you may be on, divisions alienate. Brothers and sisters that used to be together, they're now apart, and that alienation hurts. People who used to get along, people who used to hang around together, visit together, they now feel distant, they feel like strangers. Maybe there's even, in some cases, tension there or awkwardness or hard feelings, and you, you almost wish you wouldn't run into them at church or wherever else. That's sad, right? That's just distressing when those divisions take place. And that kind of situation grieves God just as well. Now, to be sure, some divisions, some separations, they had to take place because one side had turned away from faithfulness to God. One side rejected the teachings of Holy Scripture. That in itself grieves our Savior. But what about when it's a different scenario? You've got sincere believers getting mired down in their own opinions on matters outside of God's Word who get so entrenched they stop associating with those who don't share those opinions. How then does the Lord look upon that? When He sees members of His family, sons and daughters of His, walking circles around each other, avoiding fellowship because of hurt feelings or disagreements, is that why He sent His only begotten Son to give His life? Jessica and Rachel and Sydney will soon profess the one true Catholic undoubted Christian faith. They stand here united as sisters in the Lord. Beautiful. How can they stay that way? How can they prevent themselves from becoming divided? And that, brothers and sisters, is the underlying issue in our text. Division and hurt feelings they were developing among the disciples of John. And John, led by the Spirit, teaches them and us how to overcome those things. So I bring you this word of the Lord. Embrace Jesus. Embrace Jesus as the only bridegroom. We are to focus on Him, and we are to believe in Him. The opening verse of our text tells us that at some point after Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem with His disciples for the surrounding countryside of Judea, and we read there that Jesus remained in the countryside with His disciples and was baptizing. I wonder if you knew that. Did you know that Jesus baptized people? Although as John 4 verse 2 will tell us, we didn't read that, but it says in John 4, verse 2, that Jesus himself did not physically baptize, but his disciples did the work of baptizing, clearly on his command. Now, this is 
a bit unusual. If you read the Gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke, those Gospels never mention Jesus or His disciples baptizing. They only ever speak of John's baptism. In fact, they give the impression, those other three Gospels, that John the Baptist was arrested shortly after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and then you have the impression John was taken off the scene into prison, and Jesus goes about His work, which never seems to involve baptizing. But here He's baptizing. John's Gospel, we've seen that in an earlier sermon, tells us that there was several months where John's ministry, the John the Baptist ministry, and Jesus' ministry where they overlapped. John was not yet in prison. He was still doing his thing, still teaching, still baptizing, and Jesus was beginning to teach, and he also baptized. What are we to make of that, that Jesus was baptizing? What kind of baptism was it? Was it the same as John's, or was it a different thing? Was it baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus would later command? Well, we are not given many details in our text or elsewhere in this gospel, but if we recall that we are here in those early months of Jesus' ministry, He's, he's just getting started, His disciples are just beginning to gather around Him, and he has much to teach them about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So at this early point, it would be very unlikely that the disciples would even understand baptism into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus had not yet died on the cross, and he had not yet risen from the dead, so to be baptized into the name of Jesus would be premature at this stage. And from the casual way that John, the gospel writer, just mentions Jesus' baptism and, and its association with John's baptism, it seems fair to conclude that what Jesus was doing through His disciples was basically the same as what John was doing, John the Baptist. A baptism that symbolized God's promise to wash away sins. And if you think about the, the message that Jesus came with, the very first round of preaching that Jesus came with, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that was exactly the same message that John the Baptist came with as well. Same message, and so it makes sense that they would give the same sign to those who responded in faith to that message. So, what our text presents in these opening three verses is a description of Jesus baptizing somewhere out in the Judean countryside to the north of the city of Jerusalem. And John, it's mentioned, he's also somewhere out there at a little place called Anon, where there was lots of water, and we have the impression these were two different locations. But as John and his disciples are at this place of Anon, they become aware, the disciples of John become aware that Jesus is becoming more popular than John. The crowds are going to Jesus more than they're coming to John. That's the issue of our text. It seems that they become aware of this from a conversation with a visitor, a Jew, it mentions. The verse 25 says that John's disciples got into a discussion with a Jew over, quote, purification. Purification, that's a typical word used all throughout the laws of Moses to refer to ritual cleansings, ritual washings. In other words, 
they were discussing the ritual that John and his disciples were busy with, as well as Jesus and his disciples, the ritual washing of baptism. That was a type of purification. Only it wasn't a discussion per se about the meaning of this rite, but rather it was somehow or another comparing the washings that Jesus was overseeing with the washings that John was overseeing and how Jesus was drawing more than John. We infer, we gather that this was the topic because the next thing we read, verse 26, is that the disciples of John, they go to their master, to John, the, the, the Baptist, and they've got this pressing question coming out of this conversation. What's their question? Verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, and you, that refers back to chapter 1, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. That was their concern. All are going to Him. They're leaving us, and they're going to Jesus. Can, can, can you hear in that, brothers and sisters, can you hear the voice, the fear of jealousy? They're basically saying to their master, Master, that fellow, and they don't even give him a name, that, that the one who was with you across the Jordan. So they, they're kind of somehow putting him in a little category there. That fellow is making more disciples than you. Shouldn't you do something about that, Master? This is not right. You were on the scene first. These students, they are being very protective of their teacher. These disciples, to their credit, are dedicated followers of John. They know John to be a faithful servant of God. Unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had rejected John, they not only accept John, but they, they become loyal to him, and their loyalty brooks no rivals. What are we going to do with the competition, Rabbi? This is their big issue. How should the disciples of John react to the arrival of this Jesus of Nazareth? If you recall the previous passage about Nicodemus, that was all about how Nicodemus and the crowds of people had on the one hand welcomed Jesus with open arms, but as it turns out, they did not have a true faith. Jesus is at pains to explain to Nicodemus, you, you, don't, you don't accept my testimony. You don't accept, not yet anyway, that the Son of Man has come to suffer and to be lifted up on a cross. So Jesus explained to Nicodemus what true faith involved. Now in our text, the gospel writer, he turns the camera to a different group, a smaller group now, the disciples of John the Baptist. And they're thinking, wouldn't it be wrong of us to leave John for Jesus? You recall from chapter 1 that some of John's closest disciples had already done this. They had left John to follow Jesus. Andrew was one of them, but there were others. So a split among John's disciples had already earlier occurred, and the ones that stayed behind, they know that their former colleagues are now with Jesus, and they're jealous. These men knew one another personally. And the disciples that had stayed with John, they want to justify their decision. Isn't our trust in John 
and continued loyalty to John, isn't that the right thing to do? They come with that question to their master. We can have those kinds of questions too sometimes, can't we? Now, we don't encounter prophets anymore in our time, but it can be that we have come to have a great deal of respect for certain godly individuals, and we might develop a sense of loyalty to the one or to the other, whereby any perceived competition meets with our instant disapproval. We become protective. The Corinthian Christians, we read that from chapter 3 of that letter, they were doing this kind of thing. Paul says, some follow Peter, Cephas, some follow Paul, others follow Apollos. Right there in the congregation, there were distinct groupings. Or maybe in our time, it's not people we follow, but ideas or a cause. And when something comes along, that wants to or seems to detract from that idea or cause, we, we, we get defensive and, and the gloves come up. And we start striking out. We become upset out of envy or jealousy. You know, there's a very fine line between jealousy and godly zeal or zealousness could really call it zealousy. It's not really a word, but jealousy and zealousy would be handy to have that as words because in the Hebrew, that's actually the same word, only it gets translated positively or negatively depending on the context, but it's the same root concept. It's, it's, it's describing this passion, and it can be a godly passion or it can be an ungodly passion. Zeal, zealousy if you like, for God and His kingdom, that is commended. But jealousy that arises from a, a sense of threat to my personal pride, that's sinful. John's disciples, they, were, they had their pom-poms up for John. It was John the Baptist who was their hero. He was in the center. Their own personal value was connected to the fame and the success of John the Baptist. And they were becoming resentful when that was threatened. Can you relate to that in some way? If you are leaning on someone or on some idea besides Jesus, if you're leaning on that person or thing for your sense of worth, for your sense of purpose, imagine what happens when that person or thing is diminished. What feelings get triggered inside? Isn't it jealousy, anger, resentment? See, that's where John's disciples are at. And now their teacher, John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit of God, he responds to them with, with great wisdom. Verse 27, he starts off with this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Disciples, he's saying, neither Jesus nor I can be anything other than what God has given us to be. I am what I am only because of God. And what am I? Verse 28, 
John says, you bear me witness. You know, because I told you this earlier. You bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before the Christ. Disciples, I am just a messenger, a messenger for the King, the Christ, the Anointed One. Jesus, I've already said to you, He is that coming Christ. He's now here. I was never meant to gather disciples to myself permanently. My job was to point you and all the people to the one who was coming, to the Christ, to the bridegroom. And that's what I've done. John brings in that imagery of bridegroom, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Disciples, you, you come to me and you tell me that more people are flocking to Jesus than to me. You know what I say? I say, great, thank God. That's wonderful. My friends, don't be jealous. Not for my sake. The one who has the bride, that person is the bridegroom. Rejoice. The imagery that he's using here, bride and bridegroom, is well-known imagery out of the Old Testament where several times over God is described as the bridegroom, so Yahweh, the covenant God, and Israel is described as the, the wife or the bride. So by using this imagery, John is saying a couple of big, big things here. He's saying, look, not only is Jesus the Christ, like I said earlier, which means he's the king of Israel, whose arrival I've been sent to herald, but this Jesus, he is actually God. He is the bridegroom. This is Yahweh come down to earth in the flesh. He's come to seek his bride. The bride is going to naturally go to her bridegroom. And in that I rejoice. And you should too, my friends. John talks about the friend of the bridegroom. It's an expression like our best man. He refers to himself as the best man to Jesus, the bridegroom. In those days, like in our own, but it was more elaborate perhaps, the best man would help with the wedding preparations. His goal was to, make, to help make the wedding day a success for the couple. His focus was on the bridegroom and the bride. He was to ensure that all was ready so that when the bridegroom came, and you remember the parable of the, the ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom, right? So the bridegroom comes at a certain moment to collect his bride. When he hears the, the bridegroom coming, he wants everything to be ready. He wants the bride to be ready so that nothing was amiss. And at a wedding, then and today, the focus is on the couple. It's not on the best man or on any of the attendants. They're there to draw the light, the focus to them. He's not looking to steal the show. All the focus is on the bridegroom. And that is the first antidote to sinful jealousy and ungodly divisions, all the attention, all the focus of everyone must be on the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. John even says with these remarkable words, verse 30, He, 
referring to Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Can we say that, brothers and sisters? Jesus must grow in stature, in importance, in the eyes of everyone. But then it must begin with me. Do I care more for my reputation than I do for the reputation of Jesus? Do I care more for the things that I feel are important, my issues, than I do for the honor of the bridegroom, Christ Jesus? Am I more concerned with what I feel is right than what Jesus tells me is right? Do my personal opinions mean more to me than what the Lord Jesus teaches me in Scripture? He must increase. I must decrease. Sydney and Jess and Rachel, you will soon make this promise that you declare that you love the Lord God with all your heart and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve Him according to His Word, to forsake the world and crucify your old nature. That devotion to Christ, that's what John is talking about here. You and, and, and I and all the rest of us, we are servants of this Master, Jesus. We are bride to the great bridegroom, to the wonderful bridegroom. And so we may and we must embrace him as spiritual husband. We have to let go of all self-importance. We have to lower the priority of our personal opinions and issues. And we must elevate the priority of Christ's will and commit ourselves to focusing on honoring Christ by doing what Christ wants as he lays it out in his word. It's a good vow you ladies are going to make. May God enable you to keep it. And may we as congregation keep it alongside of these three. And may it begin by all of us working hard to maintain and build up the unity of the bride of Christ right here in Ancaster or wherever, whatever congregation you might be from. For that is certainly one of the things that the Lord Jesus wants, right? That's, that's what the Scriptures reveal. He, he wants His bride to be working on unity. Paul, in that passage we read, he warns each of us to take care how we build on that foundation that He Himself laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. There are those who build upon the foundation and try to build up the, the, the body of Christ that should be all of us in one way or the other. Our actions must not break down. Our actions must not tear down or somehow diminish, but our actions must build up. Christ loves His bride, the church, with all of her warts and wrinkles, and there's lots of them. But He loves her, and He's working to purify her, to sanctify her. Should we not follow our Master and put our effort into that as well? Christ loves all of His children deeply, even with all their shortcomings and failings. Should we not do the same? Jesus always puts others ahead of Himself. 
He sacrificed so that his church would experience blessing. Can we make that same commitment in our lives? In place of jealousy, let us have compassion and understanding for the other. Instead of hasty judgment, let there be patient endurance. And in place of an inflated ego, let us have a humble heart that knows its own weakness, that, that is willing to go low to serve fellow members here in the bride of Christ. All of this is possible if only we keep our eyes focused on the bridegroom and keep our hearts believing in him. For John the Baptist goes on with his instruction to his disciples in the verses 31 to 36, and he urges them there very clearly to put their trust in Jesus. In other words, he tells his disciples in a roundabout way, you actually made a mistake when you stayed with me. When you did not leave to go with the other disciples like Andrew and some of the others did. John's disciples, it seems, were loyal to a fault and they had trouble leaving John to give their allegiance to Jesus even after John was in prison. We read an example of that in Matthew 9. There's still, by that point, John is in prison and there's still a group of John's disciples that keeps apart from Jesus' disciples and they even dare to, to raise questions about the methods of Jesus and his disciples. You're not fasting like we are, they say to those disciples or to Jesus in Matthew 9. So John has to, he knows the, the, the character of his own disciples, so he addresses them very directly here in verses 31 to 36. Now, let me say a very quick word about those quotation marks that I mentioned earlier that in the ESV fall at the end of verse 30, and I believe they should fall at the end of verse 36. How does that work? Why is there a distinction? Well, in the Greek translation or the Greek original, there is no such thing as quotation marks, so that presents a little bit of a problem. You have to sometimes decide where the quote begins and where it ends, but normally there are words in the Greek language that indicate that a quote is beginning and a quote is ending. Now, some say, well, John's words end at verse 30 because verses 31 to 36 sound a lot like the Gospel of John chapter 1, like the evangelist. So it seems like the evangelist is kind of repeating things from chapter 1 here in verses 31 to 36, so it must be the Gospel writer putting in his own comments. But brothers and sisters, that, that's just an assumption. There's, there's, no, there's no proof for that in the text. There's no indicator for that in the text. And why can it not be that John, the gospel writer, picks up his theology from John the Baptist? So we're not going to work on assumptions, but we're just going to take the, the paragraph. And by the way, the New King James and the NASB do this as well. We're going to take the paragraph right down to 36, as John the Baptist still discussing, still answering his disciples, giving them uh, an address, a kind of addressing down or at least teaching them, for the matter is very, very serious. He's saying to them, my friends, don't be jealous for me 
Don't stay blinded to the great truth that stands before you. This is very critical. For this Jesus whom, whom you are looking down upon with some disdain, He's not someone like me. He's not someone equal to me even. This Jesus is far above me. That's what John is getting at in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. He's speaking about himself. He speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven, that's Jesus, he is above all. I'm just a mere man, but this Jesus of Nazareth, don't you see? He came down from heaven. He is God the bridegroom who's come to seek his bride. Be careful that you don't despise him, my friends. That warning comes out a little further in verse 32. John says, he bears witness, so Christ bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Well, we've heard that before in this gospel, haven't we? Coming out of John's pen in chapter 1, verse 10, coming out of Jesus' mouth to Nicodemus, nobody believes my testimony. And now it's here on John the Baptist's lips to his disciples, and it comes, it's a warning to them. He's saying, look, it's very, very easy to dismiss that fellow from Nazareth. Everybody's doing it. They, they think that they've got him figured out. They don't know nothing. Human nature is darkened by sin. It cannot easily embrace the light. So my disciples, do not follow your natural instincts when it comes to sizing up who Jesus is. You feel like rejecting him. You feel like he needs to be set to the side. But he, in fact, is God's chosen one. He's been sent from heaven to you to bring you salvation so believe in him don't misplace your trust in, in a mere human servant like me but give your heart give your trust exercise your faith in this jesus christ the son of god in other words he's saying to his disciples do what these three sisters are doing for us in front of us here this afternoon commit yourself to the lord jesus christ give him your heart he's the real deal john had already testified chapter 1 verse 34 that this jesus is the son of god what he's doing here is expanding on that verse 33 whoever receives christ's testimony sets his seal to this that god is true for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given into his hand all things. You remember that John had also seen the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and remain on him. And now John is working out the implications of these truths. If you believe, he's saying to his disciples, if you believe what Jesus says, his testimony about himself, then understand you're doing more than saying that this man has spoken true words. You are certifying that God Almighty, the Creator, the Savior, the, the Lord of Israel, who sent him, that he is true. This isn't just a human thing. This is a God thing. Jesus comes from God. Jesus is the Son of God, full of the Holy Spirit. He has no measure. There's no measure on the Spirit. So my disciples, if you leave off following me to run into the arms of Jesus and cling to Him in true faith, you are on the side of God. You are doing the right thing. 
He must increase and I must decrease. And if you are on the side of God, my friends, he pleads with them, you will not suffer God's wrath. That's the final and and critical message that the Baptist leaves his disciples and us. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not or shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's that two-sided sword we saw last time, isn't it? Rachel, Jess, and Sydney, today, since today, you publicly profess your faith in this same Jesus, Son of God. You may know without a shadow of a doubt that you are no longer under the wrath of God. You have, in fact, received life, eternal life, everlasting life. That anger of God that used to be upon you and all the world, that used to be over your heads because of your sin, that wrath has been taken from over your heads. And it was, meant, it was caused to come crashing down on the head of the Son of God as He hung on the cross. Confess and keep confessing what you're going to confess in a few minutes, your trust in that sacrifice of Jesus and the comfort of everlasting life will be yours as you walk in this new life, fellowshipping with your God. That walk, that fellowshipping with God, it's actually mentioned there too in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Here comes. Whoever does not obey the Son, shall not see life. Faith and obedience, right? They go hand in hand. Just as Jesus said earlier to Nicodemus, verse 21, whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we've got faith and we have works. Trust and obey, remember? There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You can obey the Lord's commands because the Lord enables you to. We read here that God has given the Son the Holy Spirit. He's given the Holy Spirit to Christ without measure. And we know that Christ has sent His Spirit into you and into all His people. You have been born again. Those who believe have been born again. The Spirit blows His holy wind over your soul. And so in His strength, you and I and all of us servants of God, we can turn away from that pride we talked about earlier. We can turn away from selfish desire, from wanting to do our own thing and will. And we can conduct ourselves more and more in holiness, in humbleness, in service to our great King, in loving devotion to our only bridegroom, Jesus Christ, whom we are learning to embrace with all our hearts. Amen.